Our next passage is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Are you a faithful person? For married people, one of the first things that probably went through your mind is your faithfulness to your spouse. And you might think, well, I haven't cheated on them, so I guess that makes me faithful. If you're single, perhaps you thought about whether you don't Dog the boys or betray the friends. Well, Jesus' words in our passage talk about a certain kind of faithfulness. One that concerns all of us, whether married or single. I remember sharing Jesus' words in this passage with a friend. And his response was, well, I guess I'm going to hell. I'm sure he would not be alone. Now, obviously, one of the focuses of our passage this morning is faithfulness in marriage. But you can certainly still be lustful without being married. So our passage has wide-ranging application. As we consider God's words here, we'll do so under the following headings. One, seek faithfulness in your heart. Two, seek faithfulness in your marriage. And three, seek the faithful one. God's desire and indeed his command to us, his disciples, is that we would be faithful. Let's begin with our first section in verses 27 to 30 under our first heading. Seek faithfulness in your heart. It's easy to be obedient to God's commandments when they are sins that we are extremely unlikely to commit. Last week was a good example of that, right? How often do you seriously think about murdering someone? I mean, if you do, you you might need help. Come and talk to me. It would be the rare person in our culture who would honestly contemplate that. But anger? It would be the rare person who doesn't have angry thoughts. And so after shedding more light on the sixth commandment, which we saw last week, Jesus now in our passage sheds more light on the seventh commandment. And the seventh commandment is less out of reach for the average person. More people in our country commit adultery than they do commit murder. Our sex-obsessed and commitment-phobic culture are surely one of the reasons for that. One of the top pop songs of the last few months is basically a celebration of lust and adultery. 
And Jesus confronts these sins head on. Let's read from verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Notice the similarities with the passage that Josh preached on last week in verses 21 to 26. The passage before this one was the first of six of these sayings in chapter 5. People sometimes call them the antitheses, meaning statements that contrast. And that's because in each of them, Jesus says, You have heard it said, or it was said, but I say to you, but I say to you. And we saw a few weeks ago that Jesus is showing how the Pharisees and the scribes have completely missed the point and the heart of the law. He has to be antithetical, not because the Old Testament law got it wrong, but because the scribes and the Pharisees got it wrong. He once again, as we saw last week, goes deeper into the heart of the law. In the same way that anger makes you liable for judgment just as much as murder so the one who lusts has already committed adultery in their heart. And Jesus isn't saying anything particularly revolutionary here. After all, the 10th commandment says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Some rabbis before Jesus had already noticed that this would mean not just stealing your neighbor's wife, but taking her as your wife and therefore committing adultery. Job himself basically expressed this same point hundreds of years before Jesus in Job 31.1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? The thought of committing adultery with your neighbor's wife is a logical conclusion of coveting her. Jesus is drawing out of the law what was already baked into it. And this is significant because, as we've heard several times, the Pharisees didn't treat the law that way. Remember verse 20, Jesus says that his disciples' righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. How? By capturing the heart of the law and seeking to obey it with full hearts of love for God. Jesus exposes another way that this happens here, as he does throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. You see, the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees was that they were seeking to obey the letter of the law, but had lost the heart of it. They were whitewashed tombs. They were beautiful on the outside, but full of dead bones on the inside. They were like coffee cups that had washed the outside, but kept the inside coffee stained. Is that not all too often true of us in our religion? Let me just, you know, make sure I do my religious duties of praying and reading my Bible every day and coming to church on Sunday. I've done enough that God should be happy with my righteousness. What's the bare minimum that I need to do for God to be happy with me so I can then get on to doing what I want to do? That's basically what the Pharisees were doing. Seeking the bare minimum to make sure they could tick the box and then get on with what they wanted. 
And perhaps you're here this morning and you think that's the right way to be right with God. Tick the box and then I'm good to go. I can do whatever I want. Let me encourage you to keep listening and to chat with one of our members about what makes Jesus different. And Jesus shows here how wrong the Pharisees are about the law. The question for Jesus' disciples is not, how far can I go without crossing the line? It's, how far can I go in faithful love and obedience? Now, to be clear, doing is important. Now, kids, your parents, they read to you the Bible. They teach you truths about God. They get you to memorize Scripture because they want you to know Him. But I think I speak for all our parents when I say that their hope for you is not that you'll only have a head full of knowledge about God. Their hope for you is that such knowledge would lead you to recognize your sinfulness before God and need to trust in Christ for salvation and righteousness. And that out of that love that you pursue holiness just as He is holy, just as they strive to do. Our own works of righteousness and our best attempts at faithfulness are not enough to earn us entry into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus highlights once again how true that is by showing us the the astronomical heights of God's standard. I remember somebody once euphemistically saying to me, it doesn't matter where you get your appetite, as long as you eat at home. Jesus doesn't say that at all. The word lust in the Greek, when used in other contexts, refers to a desire, a longing. And that is the sense of the word. And obviously, when used in this context, is referring to a specific unholy desire. Now, in the right context, it is not a wrong desire. A husband or wife desiring their spouse in this way is not a bad thing. It is, in fact, a good thing. But only in this context. And let me be clear, this is not a desire that is aimed at self-satisfaction. Just because you're married, it doesn't mean you automatically, whenever you want, have a right to this kind of physical gratification. For all sorts of reasons, physical inability, changes in your bodies or your desires, tension in your marriage, that desire may not be satisfied. Sexual intimacy in marriage is not just about satisfying your urges. Sadly, in our selfishness and in our sin, we've turned it into exactly that. But God's design for the the one flesh union of marriage is that it is a picture of the union between us and Christ. It's to be a union of self-sacrifice and service to one another, delighting in our spouse's joy. Whether singled or married, whether single or married, let me encourage you to spend some time in Ephesians 5 to understand this. There's a reason Adam and Eve, before the fall, were naked and felt no shame. There's a reason they covered their nakedness 
the moment they fell. In Christian marriage, God uses sexual intimacy and the neurochemical response of its pleasure to deepen our love for one another, to deepen our commitment to one another, to deepen our vulnerability with one another, our willingness to greatly sacrifice for the growth and sanctification of our spouse, our ability to not feel shame in front of them when we are naked our loyalty to them through thick and thin till death do us part. At least that is what it's supposed to do. When we become addicted to the pleasure itself without seeing it rightly as an expression of love and commitment to our spouse, the one with whom we have made a covenant for life, that's when it twists and it bends into something grotesque. That one flesh union gives us a glimpse of, and it points to, our union with Christ. When we come to Him by His grace, through the gospel, He removes our shame. When we recognize that our sins have been atoned for on the cross... That enables us to stand naked before Him as we are, to recognize that He loves us as we are. That increases our love, devotion, commitment to, and sacrifice for Him. Married couples, that is its purpose. As we delight in one another, we delight in the one to whom we are eternally united to. If you are experiencing struggles in this area, meditate on this wonderful picture of God's design. And let me encourage you to talk to our pastors or to another mature, godly, trusted couple in our church that you can share this with. I hope we don't think that we are beyond seeking help because it might be uncomfortable and awkward to talk about. But married couples are certainly not the only ones needing to guard their desires here. Notice how Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman in verse 28. Now, even though he's referring to males in this example, just as the seventh commandment applies both to men and women, so do Jesus' warnings here about lust. You can just exchange that. My single brothers and sisters, that means that until you are married, you must guard your minds from straying too far. Attraction and appreciation of a potential spouse is part of the process. That's okay. Noticing a person's beauty or character or feeling butterflies in your stomach when being with someone is how this kind of love is kindled for another person in the first place. But Jesus warns us of the seriousness of lustful intent here. And so should the thought progress from, from attraction into this desire, that is where you must take a few steps back 
Should the Lord provide you with a potential spouse, strive to become a godly husband or wife in everything that entails. Everything I just said about the the, the union of marriage. Consider Ephesians 5. Look at how a wife ought to submit to her husband. Consider how a husband ought to lay down his life for his wife. Be more like Christ. That should be your striving as you await the Lord to potentially provide you with a spouse one day. You see, to be gunning for marriage just so that you can have your lustful intent satisfied is to steer your marriage in the direction of disaster. Now, it's generally true that men struggle with the the visual aspect of this more. Temptation enters through their eyes and the reruns, they just continue to go in their minds. That's why the use of explicit material, I trust you know what I'm referring to here, is higher among men than among women, though that is changing. But ladies, don't think that that is the only way that lustful intent enters your heart. It might not enter through explicit material like that put before your eyes, but there are many doorways into the heart. Just think about it. Why is it that romance films and novels continue to be pumped out at a faster rate than anybody asked for? No, we don't want this. No, apparently lots of people do. Are you aware of how easy it is to slip into some kind of fantasy world, dreaming about a life or a man who meets your desires the way your husband does not? It is sin at any point in your marriage to be imagining someone else in place of your spouse. That is coveting. That is lustful intent. And as disciples of Christ, we're not just looking for the line so we don't cross it. We're looking for how we can more fully love and long for wholehearted faithfulness to our God. That's where it begins. Yes, you can, we we should do all we can to, to kill those lusts, and we'll talk about some of those in a second, but the death of lustful intent, the death of sinful desire begins with rightly ordering our desires. A rightly ordered heart rightly orders its desires. C.S. Lewis put it like this. When I have learned to love God better than any earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. If you want to love your spouse more, Love God more. I pray that we would continue to set our desires on Christ and so order the rest of our heart's desires rightly. Because the consequences of looking for the line on lust are no joke. 
That's why Jesus isn't shy about the measures we ought to go to cut it out of our lives. Let's read from verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Kids, let me ask you something. Do you know of anybody in our church who has cut out their right eye or cut off their right hand? Anyone? I mean, it's, it's easy to tell, right? Because if you do either of those, you, you can just see whether they still have their hand or their eye, right? So is there anyone who's done that? No. Are we being disobedient then? Oh, I don't know. See, I remember when I was a kid and I read this passage, I thought to myself, well, I guess I should just cut out my eye or cut off my right hand. That's what Jesus tells me to do. We read these verses and we think, oh, well, of course, Jesus is being hyperbolic to make a point. And that's right. One of the reasons we know this is because Jesus is talking about desires. He's talking about things in our hearts. Cutting out your eye does not remove the desire. Plus, even if you cut out just one eye, you can still see with the other eye. So that doesn't even fix the problem, right? We understand what Jesus is saying here. He is showing us how serious the sin of lust is and the lengths that we ought to go in order to cut it out of our lives. That's his point. And it's still worth pondering for us. You see, we, we, we easily hear that and think, oh yeah, of course that's not what Jesus meant. So, you know, I don't have to cut out my eye and my hand. But what if, let's say, Jesus was being literal? Let's say the price of killing lust and avoiding hell was to remove your right eye and your right hand. Would you pay it? What if it was something even more than that? You, there are you, many Christians who went to extreme lengths in history to seek to remove lust from their lives. Origen, church father, was castrated. Jesus is not afraid of cutting to the heart of this issue. And how we answer this question will tell us how real we believe hell to be. Jesus isn't afraid of showing how the consequences of even heart sins that may not seem like they do lots of damage are enough to condemn a person to an eternity of God's wrath. Now, if that's shocking to you this morning, one of the reasons that is true is because God's punishment for our sin is not according to the size of our sin, but according to the infiniteness of the one that we have sinned against. The Bible teaches that our sin condemns us and our good works are not enough to save us. It begs the question, if Jesus wasn't afraid of reasoning this way, then why so often are we? 
Hell is real. It is terrifying. And the sin of lust, which so easily latches onto our hearts and digs its hooks into us, could drag us into hell. Do you love the holiness of God and do you fear the terror of hell enough to do whatever it takes to kill the lusts of your heart? Let me give us some suggestions for what that might look like in our lives. The prices that we ought to be willing to pay. Cutting out your eye might look like paying to have covenant eyes installed on all your devices. Having brothers and sisters that you know will keep you accountable on this. It might look like leaving computers out in a common area and having your bedroom as a no devices area. It might even look like, if necessary, getting rid of all devices entirely. Cutting out your eye might look like being mindful of where your eyes go in public, especially places like the waterfront or swimming at a rock hole. Or, because we live in the tropics, basically anywhere. Developing a habit of looking away immediately when necessary. It might even look like avoiding such places entirely until our hearts develop a godlier appetite. It looks like recognizing that if you're watching or reading something that is stirring your desires in a lustful or in a fantastical direction, then you need to cut that off immediately. And it certainly looks like seeking to do all of the above in the context of the local church where brothers and sisters will walk with you, pray with you, encourage you, and fight alongside you, spur you on, encourage you with Scripture, remind you of the truth. Especially in our culture, these, these might sound like extreme suggestions. Man, why don't you just, just loosen up a bit? Are they more extreme than cutting out your eye? Jesus also mentions the hand. Evidently, he's talking about some kind of physical action that leads to or involves lust, right? Human touch is a powerful thing. Many hearts and lives and marriages have come to ruin with just the brush of a hand. And of course, there is a specific action involving the hand which causes and is motivated by lust, one that is considered very normal in our day and age, one that is considered a valid expression of a person's self-discovery and personal gratification. Again, I trust you know what I'm referring to, adults. And mind you, that is not just an issue for our singles, even though they may seem like the most obvious ones to fall into that sin. Consider once again the purpose of the one flesh union. There are many more examples of sacrificing our limbs, so to speak, that I'm sure we could come up with. And the question is, would we rather keep our hand or have our whole body thrown into hell? Would we rather keep these momentary, sinful gratifications of our flesh than have our whole body thrown into hell? 
Brothers and sisters, I don't want to downplay the difficulty of destroying sinful lusts. We live in a world of instant gratification. We don't even have to go looking for sinful lusts. They come looking for us. They're beating down our door in every, everywhere we walk, everywhere we flick our phones. I understand, I appreciate, I know it is a real challenge. Whether we are those who remain single and are longing for marriage, or whether we are dating, or whether we are in struggling marriages, whether we wrestle with same-sex attraction, whether we are those who have been widowed, or whether we are those who are physically impaired, there are many reasons why the battle with lustful intent in our hearts is one of the hardest mountain climbs of the Christian life. But brothers and sisters, do not let your suffering through this give you faulty reasons to indulge in sin. Do not let your suffering in the battle for a pure heart give you faulty reasons to indulge in sin. Don't substitute the pleasures of God for counterfeit pleasures. Drink in Psalm 16, 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Meditate on that over and over. Let your heart develop an appetite for the pleasures of God. Let us walk with you. Let us grieve with you. Let us encourage you and spur you on to seek his pleasure. Because the sacrifices of this life are worth it. This tells us not only what we believe about hell, but what we believe about heaven. Set your mind on things above, not on things below. Let me plead with you this morning the cost The cost of following Jesus is worth it. And the pleasures of eternity will make the suffering of this life seem like a distant memory. Listen to how the Apostle Paul, a single man, puts it in his second letter to the Corinthians. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison... As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Seek faithfulness in your heart, church. He is worth it. And in so doing, seek faithfulness in your marriage. Which brings us to our second point. (sighs) Seek faithfulness in your marriage. I'm aware that not everybody in the room is married. Kids, just confirm this for me. Last I checked, none of you are married. Is that right? That hasn't changed. I've heard talk of marriage a little bit among some of you, but none of you are actually married, right? Good, good. Well, this next section deals with marriage and divorce, 
But even if we are not married, it has important application for all of us, as we will see. Single people, especially those looking to marry, I hope our exploration of these verses verses will help guide your thinking and hopes for marriage. And at the very least, I hope we as a church can encourage and pray for our married couples and those seeking marriage to be faithful and steadfast. Let's read from verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Here is the third of Jesus' antitheses in chapter 5. And in order to get a clearer picture of what Jesus is getting at here, it's important for us to get a bit of background. You see, we have our own context and assumptions that we bring to this verse, which are not necessarily the ones that Jesus is addressing. They're close, but not quite. Now, the background text for this is Deuteronomy chapter 24, which says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in her eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce. Now, the next three verses go on to give rules about this. And there's a bunch of stuff there that's good to talk about, but it's not as relevant for us right now. I'd be happy to discuss that later. And the most relevant part of this verse in Deuteronomy 24 is where it says, some indecency. You see, there were a couple of schools of interpretation at the time of Jesus, which took different views. The one that followed the teacher Shammai believed that there was only one reason that somebody could write a certificate of divorce, and that was sexual immorality. That's what they understood some indecency to mean. So in, in the, uh, the Mishnah, which is a collection of Jewish sayings that were written down in about the third century, uh, this is what it says. Beat Shammai. Shammai. Beat also uh, meaning the house. So the house of Shammai say, A man may not divorce his wife unless he finds out about her having engaged in a matter of forbidden sexual intercourse. That is, she committed adultery or is suspected of doing so as it is stated. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 24. But there was another school of thought which followed the teaching of another popular rabbi named Hillel. And he taught that some indecency could be separated into two causes. One, an indecency, and two, something. Now, that seems a bit funny to us, but it makes a bit more sense in the original Hebrew, kind of. Still a little bit of a long bow. Well, let me read to you what the next uh, passage in this section of the Mishnah actually says. And beat Hillel say... He may divorce her even due to a minor issue, for example, because she burned or over-salted his dish. Because he has found some unseemly matter in her. You see there, he's quoting Deuteronomy 24, meaning that he found any type of shortcoming in her. And next it goes on with what a different rabbi says. Rabbi Akiva says, he may divorce her even if he found another woman who is better looking than her. And wishes to marry her, as it is stated in that verse, and it comes to pass if she finds no favor in his eyes. Now, that sounds shocking to us, and it is. 
It should be. And yet, interestingly, we have even looser laws in our country. I mean, people won't outright say it. But you don't need to have any reason to file for divorce in Australia. This could very well be your reason. And so this more liberal view from the school of Hillel was the more popular view in Jesus' day. You can see it in Matthew 19 when the Pharisees ask Jesus about divorce again, specifically. Notice how they say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That's the house of Hillel talking. Do you see what's happened to you? The scribes and the Pharisees have taken Deuteronomy 24 and twisted it and spliced it to create exceptions that allow them to follow their sinful desires of the flesh. They made the two words, some indecency, say something that it was never meant to say. Once again, they're looking for the line so they can see how much room they can allow for their own sin. As long as I don't cross that, I can do whatever I want here. That's what Jesus is calling out here. And that's something that we should be careful of ourselves, right? As Christians who believe that the Bible is God's word, we are so susceptible to taking and twisting it to serve our own sin. I've heard somebody say that when Paul refers in Romans 1 to men and women giving up natural relations for those that are contrary to nature... He says, well, that's, that's not talking about anything outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage. No, no, no. This person argued that if a man naturally loves another man, then it is not contrary to his nature. You see that twist of the words? How easy it is to do so in search of God's approval for our sin. Our hearts so easily deceive us and to often come to the word of, of, of God expecting to find what we are already looking for. That is why we must, church, continue to let the word of God shape and change us both individually and as a church. And in order to do that, we must saturate ourselves in it. In order to understand God's word, we must continue to go back to it and soak in it. To understand the original author's intent, to understand God's intent for us as we read it. That's why we want to spend so much time together on the Lord's Day, hearing the Word and, and hearing the Word preached and praying the Word and talking about the Word. That's why we seek to read it and meditate on it as much as our energy and time throughout our days will allow us. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The more we meditate on the word of the Lord and ask his spirit to illuminate it for us that we may know his truth and be wholeheartedly faithful to it, then the less likely we are to fall into the same trap that the scribes and the Pharisees fell into. And quite appropriately, this verse in Matthew 5.32 is a great example of our need to keep going back to the Word. There are some significant implications for marriage and divorce in what Jesus says here. 
I don't plan to answer every question about marriage and divorce as it's a big topic, but I hope to answer the ones that are raised by this verse. And the first thing to say is that in order to get a fuller picture of what Jesus is saying here, it's important to also look at Matthew 19. But because I'm not preaching on that, we won't dive into everything Jesus says there. Now, the second thing to say is that there are questions raised by both these verses that can't be answered without going broader into a theology of marriage and what the Bible teaches of it. I'll do my best to answer them briefly, but to get a fuller answer, we can talk about it later or at question time. The first thing to note is that Jesus obviously regards marriage much more highly than most people, certainly in our society. He's saying that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Now, I actually prefer the NIV's rendering of this, which says makes her the victim of adultery, because the original Greek word is actually passive. And so we, we don't have a word for, for passive, you know, being made to, you know, because of a person, a spouse committing adultery, then having the result of, you get what I'm saying, being separated like that. We don't have the word adulterated, for example. At least we don't use it. It doesn't mean that. All right? So it makes her the victim of adultery. Now, I hope that clarifies things because our translation can make Jesus look like he's saying that if your spouse has, you know, commits adultery, well, then you're an adulterer. Well, no, that's, even if you haven't committed adultery, that's not his point. Just to clear that up. But the more challenging question is what happens after that? You see, Jesus says, whoever marries a divorced woman, and we can safely say all man, commits adultery. So does this mean that no divorcee can be remarried? Well, it's worth noting that it was commonly assumed in Jewish thought that remarriage was permitted after divorce. So we would expect, it's an argument from silence, but we would expect that Jesus would make it clear that remarriage wasn't an option. Well, but as we see in Jesus' own ministry, a good example of this is that uh, is in John chapter 4, where Jesus says, her former husbands, when he meets the woman at the well, they are no longer her husband's. And yet Jesus counts them as husbands. So there may be situations where a divorced person should not remarry, but I don't think Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5 that a divorcee can never remarry. But that raises another question about what biblical grounds for divorce are. Is Jesus' exception of sexual immorality here the only one? Well, this certainly, again, requires a longer answer, but it's worth pointing out that the Bible teaches that marriage is a covenant that can be broken, even though that is not what it's supposed to, it can be. We must go to the Bible to discern what God considers to be legitimate grounds for divorce, but it's important to recognize that Jesus is not giving the only legitimate reason. The fact that Paul gives us another one in 1 Corinthians 7 means we need to think more deeply about it. And so a related question that arises is, well, what counts as sexual immorality? The word used here by Jesus in the, in the New Testament is 
broadly used to refer to any kind of sexual activity outside of God's design in a monogamous heterosexual marriage. It's the Greek word pornia. And so an important question that many ask, for example, is does a spouse's ongoing and unrepentant addiction to pornography fall into this category? And is it therefore grounds for divorce? Well, I think it is. But in answering all of these questions, and in trying to discern what is a good and godly way to go forward, there is no hard and fast rule. It requires wisdom and a pursuit of faithfulness to God, which is the most important point of all when considering what Jesus is saying here. The unmistakable point that Jesus is making here, which is what the scribes and Pharisees completely missed, both here and in Matthew 19, is that they have treated marriage as a cheap thing. Jesus is showing how far more valuable it is than they, and I dare say we, treat it as. This is most clearly seen in Matthew 19 when Jesus takes them all the way back to Genesis to show them what marriage is supposed to be like. There he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. How sad it is that we say those words in our wedding ceremonies today, and most people do not even consider or recognize how profound that statement is. It is meant to be for life. That's why marriage ceremonies include those words. That's why they have vows which say, till death do us part. Divorce was given as a concession for our hard hearts, a lesser of two evils, if you will. And ironically and sadly, as Christians, we more often approach the Bible and this verse with the same attitude that the scribes and the Pharisees did. We come to the Bible trying to find any possible way out. There's something about our marriage that we're not happy about. There's some, some thing that our spouse does that we don't like. So we scan the rule book to see if we can break the covenant on some kind of technicality. And that's why what we see here and in Matthew 19 is a strong push towards keeping the marriage together. In each of these undesirable circumstances where divorce is warranted, where it is permissible, it is not required. That means a spouse should not feel guilty about divorcing where there are legitimate biblical grounds for divorce. But the heart of a Christian in a marriage is to do everything within our power as best as we possibly can to keep it together. Even if there are biblical grounds for divorce, we ought to be considering and seeking godly counsel on whether there is anything we can do to keep the marriage together. We understand the reason why God would say this, don't we? 
How often have marriages and families suffered such great damage because of a husband and wife that weren't willing to do everything possible to keep their marriage together? Now, if you have come from a marriage like that, or if you've been in contact with a marriage like that, please hear me clearly. God's grace is sufficient for you. But I hope His grace also opens your eyes or has opened your eyes to see that such circumstances ought to be lamented and grieved over. That you have godly sorrow sorrow over sin and the tearing apart of a one flesh union. Even more so if the divorce was unbiblical. See, we ought to think of divorce as something as painful as pulling flesh apart. That's why Jesus is so firm and clear about the kind of attitude his disciples must have towards marriage. The kind of resolve they must have to do everything within within their power to keep that one flesh union as one flesh. And that will only come with a wholehearted desire to be faithful. If you're single here this morning, this is why the Bible tells you not to be unequally yoked. 2 Corinthians 6.14. This isn't just God's way of trying to maintain some kind of Christian moral majority in our society. This isn't God's way of trying to say, hey, I want to limit the pool of people that you can choose from so, so that it's just really hard. No, this is about ensuring that you unite with someone who will seek faithfulness to the Lord with you. If your only goal for a potential spouse is that they're a member of the opposite sex and they claim some kind of Christian faith, because really, you know, you're, just, you're burning with passion and you just want to have that sorted then you set your heart on earthly pleasures. The union of a husband and wife is supposed to draw them further upward in their living for and in their glorification of God. Why would you want anybody who is going to drag you further away from Him, potentially down into hell? It is better to remain unmarried than to have your whole body thrown into hell. Married couples, I don't know if you've ever contemplated divorce. I hope none of us ever find ourselves seriously contemplating this possibility. But if that day ever does come, set your heart on God's desires. Pray that He would give you His heart for your marriage. Pray that he would set upon your heart a deep grasp of his design, of the fact that this covenant is one that is not meant to be broken. If you know others who are in this position now, pray. Pray that for them. And husbands and wives, consult and seek the counsel of godly friends whom you know love you and who love the Lord. Ask them ahead of time to tell you not the things that you want to hear, but the things you must hear. Ask them to tell you the hard things so that you might be faithful to God and faithful in your marriage. Church, I recognize that as far as being faithful to God goes, there are areas of these areas of lust and marital faithfulness that Jesus speaks of 
as I said before, are some of the hardest that we will face. That's why we finish with our third heading. Seek the faithful one. Remember in verse 20, Jesus told his disciples that unless their righteousness exceeded that of the scribes and the Pharisees, they would not enter the kingdom of heaven. If you look at the rest of Jesus' antitheses in chapter 5, and you think to yourself, oh, so all I have to do now is obey what Jesus says, and I guess that means I'll get into the kingdom. You know, I've just got to make sure Jesus raises the bar. I just need to clear that bar now. No, no, (laughs) you're just doing the same thing as them. These are impossible laws. That doesn't render everything I've just said invalid. (laughs) That doesn't mean we give up because we can't clear the bar. We seek faithfulness in our hearts and faithfulness in marriage. But the gospel calls us to see that not a single ounce of our law-keeping faithfulness contributes to our right standing before God. It is all of grace. We are justified before God by trusting in the one who is faithful to save. We are justified by the one who remains faithful to us and keeps his covenant of grace even when we are unfaithful. This is why divorce is so terrible and tragic in God's sight. It's why, as we read earlier in Malachi 2, God calls and commands the people of Israel to guard their spirits and to remain faithful to their wives. Because marriage has always been and always will be, even into eternity, an earthly depiction of God's relationship to his people. It's why the perversion of sex in our culture is so tragic. Not just because it turns it into something so cheap and selfish and merely physical. Not just because it undermines the far deeper union and commitment between two people in marriage. But also because it completely undermines and cheapens the depth of love and union that God has with his people. He is the perfect, holy, and faithful bridegroom. Just as Hosea remained faithful even when his wife Goma went off and prostituted herself to others, so God remains faithful to his bride. Hear the Lord's words from Hosea 2. And in that day, declares the Lord, You will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety." And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. 
How can we remain faithful in our hearts and in our marriages? By seeking the faithful one first. By seeing that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. By setting our hearts on Christ, our bridegroom, bridegroom, the one who will one day return to claim his bride, his church, and feast with her at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let me finish with the words of Mary Love, appropriate surname, wife of Puritan preacher Christian Love, as he was prepared to be executed in 1651. My dear, I know God hath not only prepared prepared glory for thee and thee for it, but I am persuaded that he will sweeten the way for thee to come to the enjoyment of it. When thou art putting thy clothes on that morning, the morning of his execution, O think, I am now putting on my wedding garments to go to be married to my everlasting Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that our desires are far too small. We are like children playing with mud pies when you offer us a trip to the beach. Lord, in these areas of temptation and challenge, of lusts in our hearts, of striving to keep our marriages not just merely together, but seeking and seeing the fullness of what marriage is, as Christ and the church shows. Lord, may you set our hearts on you. May you set our hearts on Christ our bridegroom who is coming, the one to whom we have union, the one whom we await to take us home that we may feast with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Lord, may we set our eyes on him as we seek to live lives of faithful, wholehearted obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen.